You're listening to Inside the Athletic Mind with your hosts, Taylor Cook, Lauren Williams, and Margaret Jennings. Welcome back to the second episode of Inside the Athletic Mind. I am one of your hosts, Taylor Cook. If you guys made it through the first episode, I know it was full of shenanigans, so thanks so much for tuning in and coming along on this journey with us. Uh, if you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and check it out. It'll kind of give you a little bit of an idea as to what this podcast is going to be all about and a little bit of an introduction to us as people, and you'll definitely understand our group dynamic just by the way the entire episode is laid out. In today's episode, though, we are talking about what it takes to be an Olympian, the pressures that come with playing on the world stage, and how our perception of that pressure is going to determine whether or not we will fail or succeed. And then later on in this episode, we explore the current state of the professional women's hockey leagues and the possible frameworks that could promote the women's game, encourage people, organizations, and businesses to invest and create an equitable game for current and future generations. So stay tuned. Well, so, I'm not going to give an on. intro, but like the, the overview or like the planned topic for today is to talk about the Olympics, women in the Olympics, and just kind of like the pressure that Olympians do face once they're on like that big stage. And Lauren, I think you actually wrote a newsletter for that this week, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's such an interesting topic and it's one that gets so much media coverage, right? Because for so many of these athletes, this is the, the pinnacle of the sport and they are acutely aware that this is the pinnacle of their sport. And when we think about like women's hockey, for example, minus world championships, you're training to make a team to play in this tournament for two weeks. So this is where like all of your training, all of your prep, all of your physical work, all of your mental work, all of your sacrifices are coming together. In this one scenario, this one event. And I think all of us have dealt with that in different avenues or at different events, right? But it's something that I think is present for every athlete at the Olympics from you know, the ever experienced Sean Whites of the world to uh, your veteran hockey players like the Haley Wickenheisers and even like Melo Daou and Marie-Philippe Poulin. They've all been there a couple times. Oh, there goes my phone. <laughs> so it's it's something that's interesting to to talk about because it's there for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I think I had mentioned it to you guys before. I heard it spoken about in the context of not sport life. They're talking about it in school, right? So let's say you wanted to pursue a degree. So you show up in a classroom with like thousands of other people and you're told, okay, like you are going to spend every day for the next four years working towards accomplishing this degree. But only three of you are going to graduate with the actual degree. 
right? And like how many people given that context would stay in that classroom and commit to that pursuit of that degree or how many would look at the odds and be like, screw this, I'm out, right? Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting context to think in. And I mean, I still think there's something that comes with the making it to the Olympics, right? Being deemed an Olympian, like that is something that you can carry with you for the rest of the life because you're labeled as, you know, one of the best athletes in this particular sport in your entire country. But mm -hmm. there's like a whole other element to this competition. Cause like you said, it's the world, right? It's everyone in the world. Are you one of the best in the world? And I think it takes a certain mindset to even consider that you're capable of doing that. And then to have the resilience and the commitment and the drive to see that through. And then at the end of it, if you're not deemed one of the top three to still be able to be resilient and see the positives in that and not, you know, let that derail you moving forward. Yeah. I think when you, um, originally gave that example and you were like, well, well, maybe it's not like quite there. Like if everybody joined the same degree program and then they said only three of you will with honors right? The rest of you might get a diploma, like you might get to graduate, but then three of you, only three of you will get like graduating with distinction. Do you still want to do it? I think that's like part of the mindset game for this. And I think that's what, I mean, for me personally, like hearing that, like that just makes me want to rise to the challenge. So I think it has so much to do with the way that you perceive those odds and how much you believe in yourself to be like, yes, I'm going to be one of those three people that gets that distinction that makes that team, like whatever that case is. And it's interesting because like, if, if you go into like a high level program, you're all entering with that same mindset for the most part. So like, to see who comes out on top to me that that's just like the fun and the enjoyment of it. And as hard as it is, you know, if you don't make it or if you don't get that spot, most of the girls, especially I'm thinking like women's hockey here, but like mm -hmm. most of the people that are in those level programs are of course going to be very upset by the fact like, Oh, I didn't make the cut. Think about the taxi squads. You're part of the team but you're not, you know, like you are, but you're not, you don't get to go on and play the game that you love. You get to be at the Olympics. You get to kind of experience it from an outsider's perspective, but you're not actually on the ice playing with your team, but you still made it, you know, but you're expected to be mentally and physically ready to go the whole time. Oh yeah. Absolutely. That's the other that's part a, of this. Like, yeah. That's the yeah. hard part too. Mm -hmm. But also like, it's funny. So your analogy, right. Of like, okay, like you, you're going to have to work really hard to get the degree, right. Only three of you are going to graduate with distinction. Again, if you, if you like in the comparison, are there some people that are just happy to get the degree? Like, are there some Olympians who it's like, wow, I made the Olympics. I'm here representing my country, probably not going to win a medal, but this is still really awesome. Right. And like, right. how does that, you know, how does that uh, concept play into it as well? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I think there was a Canadian, I think he was Canadian anyway, an Olympic skater who I think he was skating in pairs and he like went to the, to the Olympics, but he wasn't supposed to be actually skating. So I don't know if they have like a taxi squad for their, their skating pairs or whatnot, but he had to like mentally be ready to go within 24 hours. And I guess he, he fell like a few times and stuff like that. And he's got a lot of criticism from media in terms of like not being ready but like that's 
that's the battle. That's the challenge right there. Like you have to be ready to go. But at the same time, it's like, we're human. Like mm-hmm. you, you're not anticipating having to step up and be there. So like, how is it that you can really put yourself in a space and a place to be ready to go on like the drop of a dime, no matter what happens. Right. And I think that's one of the things that I, I mentioned in the newsletter too, but something that I really like to talk about, and you mentioned it briefly, Taylor, is the perception of the pressure. How do you interpret the pressure that you're under? That's so important. And I don't think that enough people talk about this because I think it's totally natural to sometimes see pressure and be a little scared of it and have the, what if I don't do well? What if I embarrass myself? What if this is the end of the road for me if I don't do well? But the sort of stigma behind that is, is if that's your reaction to it, you're not an elite competitor. You don't have the mindset to succeed. When in reality, there's probably a bunch of people that feel that way and you can be coached to perceive pressure differently. And the people who are able to show up, is, is it their natural reaction to show up and say, no, 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 the pressure actually wakes me up. It fires me up. It makes me want to go and do my best. Or are those the people who have had to coach themselves away from the fear and coach themselves into that perspective of saying, no, it's not a scary thing. It's actually an exciting thing. And learn to interpret, you know, the raising heart rate, the sweaty palms, the heavy breathing as like, hey, my body's preparing to do something huge as opposed to, holy shit, fight or flight, I'm going out the door. It's acknowledging that like that, that pressure, right? Like sports, stress and threat are a part of sport competition, right? So you do experience those and you have a biological reaction when you experience stress and threat. So you are going to have some sort of physical response if you're competing in a sport at a high level. And part of it is acknowledging that. And like you said, it's not trying to act like it doesn't exist. Like, ah, like no pressure. Like I'm just calm always. It's acknowledging that it exists and then kind of changing your relationship with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was I think a really it's also cool... about the self-awareness. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Lauren. No, no, no. I, I like that a lot too, right? Like the self-awareness piece is huge. I was yeah, like say... it comes back to that for sure. Like being yeah. able to know physically like what pops up for you to have like whether that's a red flag to show like, okay, this is how I feel when the pressure's on and I'm not ready to go versus this is how I feel when the pressure's on and I know I'm in the zone, I'm ready to go. And like for me, mm-hmm. that shows up as like, I'm a little bit jittery. Like you'll see me kind of moving a little bit and I feel like I need to pee the entire time. And until that first shot on net comes, that's when I really like settle into my flow and I get going. Whereas like for other people that shows up completely different. And like, if, if I'm not ready, then I know like, I'm probably thinking like, Oh my God, like this is huge game. You know, like the self-talk and like forcing it almost. Whereas when I'm ready, like it just, it comes naturally. Yeah. There was a really cool video clip. I would love to be able to go down the rabbit hole that I found it in on Instagram again, but who knows? You can Um, set that up. (laughs) Um, It was a bunch of skiers and snowboarders, I think, talking about fear 
And the question was, does fear play a role in your sport? And I'm going into it thinking like, yeah, maybe there'll be the one or two that are like, no, I don't, I don't feel fear. Every single one of them said, yes, absolutely. Fear is always a part of the sport. It's how you learn to handle it and how you learn to kind of compartmentalize it while you're going so that you can rely on your training so that you can focus on all of the hours of work that you put in. And like a couple of them flat out said, like, how do you not have fear when you've like witnessed yourself breaking a bone to the po point of like, it's gruesome. How, how does anybody say that they're not scared of doing that again? And the guy goes, I know I'm scared of doing it again, but that's not the goal when I like start a run. My goal is to not like, it's not about not breaking my leg. It's about putting down the best run that I can put down. And I think that's the key difference in focus and perspective is what is it that you're focusing on? Is it not screwing up? Or is it being able to put all the pieces together? I think there's a ton we could learn from athletes that compete in like extreme sports. Like one that always blows my mind is the skeleton, like going down the luge face first. I'm like, that's a certain type of person to do that. But like Ski you said, what me. It, oh mm -hmm. God, yeah, right? But like, you're right, because all of them to compete at that high level have accepted that fear is a part of it, but they've also been able to successfully, I don't want to say compartmentalize it, but like navigate it as it comes up, right? And be able to be successful and excel and execute even in spite of that, right? And I don't know about you guys, but I know a lot of times working with athletes, like the biggest aha moment is realizing that you don't have to be a victim to your feelings, like your emotions, right? Because often we experience emo an emotion, it comes out physically and we just feel like we're kind of trapped in it, right? Because that emotion is telling us how we need to feel and how we need to respond. Whereas really like the emotion is just the brain trying to communicate with the body, right? And like we say, like, don't take everything that's said to you, you know, as what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like gospel, as like yeah gospel like kind of like oh this is a definitive thing you are yeah. anxious so you are scared exactly right and it's really just taking it as feedback it's intel and we get to decide what to do with it it's not gospel that we are you know forced to follow against our will yeah so that's i think that's an interesting question right because i know that that's certainly what we coach to athletes that we work with but coming from like being on the bench consistently with a team MJ and going into high pressure situations as a coach for a team, how have you navigated communicating that to your players? Well, I would take it one step back and say, coaches are also human. So just like athletes, like they sense fear and stress and threat during games. Coaches experience that as well. It's just like kind of one layer removed from that. But I'm sure you've both mm -hmm. seen it when you are giving into those feelings of stress or fear or anger or whatever that comes out physically. It comes out in the way we carry ourselves on the bench, the way we interact with our players. And it can be like a crazy spiral. 
And in some ways it's maybe more noticeable of a spiral than it is for the players because there's that element of having to, having to react in certain ways coaches feel sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the same thing. Like I think coaches are up against it in terms of in moments in the game, having emotions or being triggered, but being able to navigate it and productively, right. And behave in a way that you want to, I think it's very common for coaches to do or say things in the moment in a game and afterwards have regrets about it. Right. Yeah. Be like, oh, shit, like I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have said that. Like I shouldn't have reacted that way, but that's when you're removed from the moment, much like players, right. In a moment you're like, oh, fuck, why did I do that? Like, why did I, you know, do this? And it's like, you can't change it after the fact. Right. So it's the same thing. And I think sometimes we all talk about this, right? Like awareness comes before intelligence. So if coaches don't have that awareness of themselves and their own emotions, then often there's no connection with being able to be aware of the player's emotions, how that's coming out physically and how to kind of guide that or support that as it's playing out. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to hear like your thoughts on the pressures of coaching, especially once we get into that Olympic level of coaching as well, right? Like we're talking about the, the pressure that Olympians face when they have to step onto a world stage and perform at their absolute best and they're all eyes on them when they're, when they're going. Right. So what does that look like or, or feel like rather as a coach in your opinion? You know, I think there might be a bit of a difference between an individual sport coach and a team coach. Mm-hmm. Um, I think individual sport coach, I think again, so like we say, athletes could probably learn a lot from talking about athletes who compete in extreme sports. I think team coaches could learn a ton about working with individual sport coaches because really the focus is the athlete because you understand like they need to be mentally and physically prepared and your job is to support them and kind of give them the support they need in order to excel in the ways they need to excel. So you are really zoned in on not just what they're doing, but how they're feeling and making sure that they're prepared. Right. Um, and I think really, I don't think anyone is like, oh, you know, if that aerial jumpers coach did a better job, they probably would have won because there's, you know, like there's not the strategic thing. Whereas in team sports, right. It's like, oh shit. Like why the, why the coach pull the goalie? Like, why did they put that player out there in this situation? Why didn't they run this face off? So Um, I think there's more of a sense rightly or wrongly that they're more responsible for the outcomes. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's like larger in Olympic sports. I don't know if maybe they get a bit of a pass because it's a more short-term event, like, but I know like in league play, you know, there's a lot of times where it's the strategic decisions they make that they're worried about being reflected on them poorly. And again, attention and energy is limited, right? it's really hard to be in your head thinking, okay, who do I need to have out when, what play do I need to run? What decisions do I need to make in terms of game management and also be zoned in on like, how is my third line right winger feeling right now? Like, you know, is she emotionally stable? So that's why I I do think coaches in general, we need to better leverage all of our support staff to have some people on the bench that can be like those individual sport coaches and provide that insight in the moment. Cause there's just too much to, to navigate. It's kind of funny that you bring up like, you know, um, there being a difference between like regular league play versus like the Olympics, because it is such a short time to prepare, but for team Canada, it's a little bit of a different story, you know, like team Canada, team USA, they have been 
centralized and practicing for a long time before the Olympics, which is why you see that they're dominating there versus teams like team Finland who get together, like maybe a month before and put that team together and start working together to, to perform at the Olympics. So it kind of shows, (laughs) it kind of shows like the difference in development in terms of not only like finances, but also like strategically how teams are able to prepare for the Olympic games. And I I know Lawrence, she, she sent um, that article from the star, which really got, got me kind of going. Oh, the argument for not having women's hockey in the Olympics, that one, that one got you going. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the one. So like, I don't know why I don't (laughs) don't know why I'm not picking up on the connection. I know it's, does women's hockey belong in the Olympics? No, you're right. It probably doesn't. You're right. Oh God. No, take it back. Strike that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like that's, so that's like an interesting aspect to look at, I think is like just how different countries are able to financially support their Olympic teams and also how they prepare for them. So like mm-hmm. this, this author of this article probably doesn't really know what the process is in terms of like how team Canada prepares, how team USA versus team Finland, you know what I mean? Like it's a different structure, which is why you see different teams performing at different levels. They have different development levels in terms of like where they're located in the world. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give you a quote from this article. I actually, I paid so I could read this article. That's how dedicated I was to figuring out what this was talking about. Um, but she says, I'll get crucified for saying so, but women's hockey doesn't belong in the games. It's a cheap medal in no way comparable to the paramountcy that some nations historically enjoy in a specific sport, like the Norwegians and cross-country skiing or Jamaicans and sprinting. There is at least some semblance of competition gobs of it actually with scads of elite athletes to make a challenge gobs and scads in the same sentence that's i know right the first <laughs> uh, i uh, i Lauren? i just i think you're right i think that person has no idea the preparation that goes into the olympics for these teams I think if they had better understanding of the financial commitment that the U.S. and Canada have to women's hockey, they would also probably understand that that's the cause of the discrepancy between competition, if that's what you want to call it. Um, and I don't like the, I just don't love it when people make blanket statements like that, like, oh, this sport does not equate to any other olympic level sport because the medal is cheap please please tell me that any one of those athletes think the journey getting there was cheap no definitely is not especially the amount of words where none of us get paid none of us get paid a living wage (laughs) tell me how tell me how frustrated you are right now so (laughs) and it's it's what's even more like frustrating is the fact that this is a female author who wrote this like putting a blanket statement on a women's sport that is trying to break through ceilings to get some sort of pay equality and to get on like national programs so young generations can have role models to look at like having 
somebody push back against that. Like that's just flabbergasting to me, but Mm -hmm. it makes me kind of wonder, okay, so if we obviously in the space understand, know that team Canada, team USA have longer preparation periods for the Olympics, should other countries be putting in that same effort or should there be some sort of outline where like you can only gather X amount of time as a team before entering into the Olympics. So there is a more quote unquote fair playing field. That's a really interesting question. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, I'm going to be devil's advocate for a second. Cause not that I agree with this side of the perspective, but I think it's always important to have both voices be the evil, evil villain coach here. Um, So my challenge is the article doesn't say that women's hockey isn't a great sport. It doesn't say that Canada and USA haven't like evolved and grown expansively, like in terms of the quality of talent and their ability. Really what it highlights for me is that there is still a glaring discrepancy in ability between the countries, right? And it's been those two that have been at the top for a long time. I I listened to a radio, uh, interview the other day and it was talking about I don't know if it was I can't even remember off the top of my head I think it was Sweden or Finland that beat us in Sweden. the semifinals and they played there's, against Canada yeah there's and three the, teams that have made it to the gold medal match it's Sweden Canada and the US yeah so for me again like I always want to be solution oriented I love hockey I want to see it in the Olympics like really in 2002 like I had that recorded on VHS and I watched it over and over and over and it was like a major motivation for me to see women competing at the Olympics it was incredible I want girls to have those opportunities so for me it becomes okay like what can the solution be and I think the biggest missed opportunity is in those other countries that have historically been strong at hockey like Sweden Finland Russia why hasn't the game on the women's side evolved the same way it has here in North America? And how do we help ensure that it does to protect our sport on an international scale so that it can continue to grow the way it needs to? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the bottom line is funding, right? And, and I know that in Sweden here, funding up until this past like couple of years dropped dramatically for women's hockey. And Sweden and Finland especially have been on the cusp of like competing with and beating U.S. and Canadian teams. We saw it happen in Worlds, what was it, two years ago, where they, I think they actually won the game, had a game call or a goal called back, and then had to go into a shootout with the U.S. and ended up losing. Um, And then Sweden's made it to the gold medal game before. So... If we're talking about not making it an Olympic sport, I I just think that the conversation that has to go before that is where's the discrepancy in funding? And is it a country level issue where they're not putting enough money into the sport? And if that's the case, like where's the money going? Is it going to one of the other sports that maybe they dominate? in the Olympics. Here's one of my fears is there were issues obviously with funding prior to the pandemic, right? Like Mm -hmm. the women weren't getting as much as the men fast forward. And like, my concern is just the general relationship 
that the world has with sports even right now. So like for instance, viewership, I just read a thing on CBC, but viewership for these Olympics is down 22% from the winter Olympics that were six months ago. Granted, they said maybe it's Olympic fatigue because usually they don't happen six months apart. Like people might be like, ah, whatever. Um, but it's 48% down from the last winter Olympics. So people aren't as engaged with sport. And we kind of touched on this before, like it might be an even bigger issue that we need to address. Like what are ways that we can keep sport relevant, keep it something that people see value in, that they want to invest in, right? Whether it's corporations or things outside of that, because I think in some ways that ask and that conversation is going to be harder now, even than it was before. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's funny that you say that because even though the viewership for the Olympics overall is down, the Canada-US women's game had the highest viewership that it's had in years, I think, with 1.4 million viewers, which is like amazing, of course, but like- And a late night game too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I know like for me, I didn't watch that game personally because it was like 5 a.m. here, but like Mm -hmm. for the other games, when it was like like six when I was in Finland, I hundred percent put my alarm on to make sure that I got up to watch that that game. Mm-hmm. MJ, where were the last win- Winter Olympics? Were they uh, in Beijing? Were, were they Pyeong- in Pyeongchang? Oh yeah, Pyeongchang. Pyeongchang. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I was gonna say. Well, I wonder if it has something to do with the time difference, because I think a lot of sports consumers are in North America, like obviously. Europe is huge with soccer, which obviously is not in the Winter Olympics. But that doesn't even make sense then, because if it's down 48% from the last Olympics or Winter Olympics, and it's still in the same time zone, that's definitely concerning. Yeah. Yep. Not to be Debbie Downer or anything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she just give up, probably. Pack it in. No. Well, I'm like, <laughs> never. <"Hail it> in. <laughs> never. She can. She continues on in the article here, and she says that the the problem is that most countries simply have no interest and little appetite for growing the game. Which, okay, to a certain extent, some of that is probably true. Um, and I don't really think for teams like Finland, Sweden, Denmark, I don't think that that's about like not having an appetite to grow it. I think it's more so about the financial backing for it. And mm-hmm. like, they are smaller countries in comparison to Canada and the U S obviously like they have less population to pull from in terms of finances. So that definitely has to play some sort of role here. But then you look at, you know, like team Japan and team China, they came out on top against like Denmark. I was very mm-hmm. surprised, but they clearly have an appetite to grow the game and they're a little bit bigger. So maybe they will have more funding for, for their national level teams. And I know that they had team China in um, the CW before it folded. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing with uh, China too, is, is they're taking a really unique approach to growing the game on both the men's and the women's side. And um, to play on that team, the, uh, I think they were at the time called the Vonky Rays in Shenzhen, China. Women were going over there and making a very respectable salary. 
So you went over to China, you played the season, you were able to come back. I had a few friends who did it and they were like, yeah, I made a, a very, very good living over there. They paid me well, treated us like professional athletes. And now what they were able to do for these Olympic Games, because they're the host country, they get to submit a team for the sport. They brought in some of the North American players who had been playing and living in China and were able to get citizenship. Now, to me, I don't think that's a bad thing at all because you are creating a competitive environment and you're bringing in expertise where your country may not have it yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I know Kazakhstan wasn't in the Olympics for women's hockey, but they were at the qualifications. And like, that was an opportunity that that fell into my lap. I think it would have been when I went out of university, but they were recruiting people from North America to go over and play in Kazakhstan. They have a team in the EW. So, you know, they, they travel a lot for that, but they were giving citizenship to these girls that are playing there in order to attempt to qualify for the Olympics. And mm -hmm. I know there's a few other countries who do that as well, but I think it's less heard of in places like Finland, Sweden, but begs the question, like, is that something that they should consider? Like Sweden has one of the best women's hockey programs in all of Europe. So why are they not performing at such a high level at the Olympics? How do they have like the most, I would, I would call it having played in almost every single women's professional league. Now I would call this one of the most professional elite leagues that I've played in so far. And half of their players don't get paid. That's why it's same in Finland too. I think like they have professional league technically, but their girls don't get paid at all. And I know few teams have some imports but very few North American imports. And I don't think they get paid very well, if, if at all. Yeah. Well, and then I came in here and I get paid like pretty well, expecting to hear that other girls on the team are also getting paid. And they're like, yeah, no. And it, like, why? You've got sponsors all over your gear. Where is that money going? <laughs> Well, and maybe, maybe that's the question that does need to be asked. Like, where does the money go? And obviously, like, I don't know the back end of that, like where, like just how financially expensive it is to like uphold a team, but like the men's teams are able to pay all of their guys. So like, what is, what is the, the framework for that? And what's the best way that we can implement that into the women's game? Because I mean, regardless if you're from Canada, US, Sweden, playing the SDHL, like you should be getting paid. And I feel bad for the girls like who, you know, are from Sweden and who have been playing with that team for, you know, so long and they, they don't get that opportunity. It's interesting. I used to collect hockey cards when I was younger, like quite an avid collector. And I remember buying the Beckett books. And be like, okay, like how much is this card worth? And I would like look it up, be like, oh great. And I would always assume like the highest value. I'm like, this card's worth eighty dollars, but really the span was like five to eighty dollars, depending. And <laughs> but Beckett aside, like probably the something someone said to me that really stuck with me is anything's only worth what someone is willing to pay for it, right? Yeah. So we think about sponsorships, and I think 
there's a lot of conversations on the women's side that a lot of a lot of money comes in on the men's side through viewership, right? Whether it's TV deals or fans in the stands, people buying tickets, people buying merchandise, a lot of money comes from that. And that helps to fuel the programs, right? So really the question becomes like, how do we make women's talkie or the support of female athletes, something that people want to buy, right? And it's not necessarily just like, in the quality of the product, because we're running into the same problem here in Canada where the players are incredible, right? Like at the height of the sport in the entire world, but how do we make that product appealing? How do we make it something worthy of people buying? Right. And whether it's like investing in creating relationships, making the players, you know, more relatable to people, putting them in positions where they can connect with others so that people want to invest in that relationship. Like there's so many different avenues we can go. But I think that's really where it starts. How do we make it something that people want to pay for? And like, even as simple as what do you guys invest your money in, right? Why do you buy what you buy? Mm -hmm. Right. There's a business side to it too, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it makes me think of the program that my university had for our team and it was called the adopt a tommy program so we would have like local families with young girls or, or boys that are in hockey they would get into this program and they would like adopt one of the the girls from the team and we would build that relationship with their their kids and their family and not only have them come out to the games but we would go to their kids sporting events as well right so like creating that positive relationship and being able to serve as a role model for younger kids and inspire and encourage them to be you know continuing on in the sport and for me like i was blessed with the best family um in my last year and like i'm still in contact with them to this day their grandma she was part of the administration at the school and she sends me like video updates like pictures like these girls are the most adorable little girls ever but like to see how they've been able to progress even just since i've graduated university in terms of like their skating ability like getting those videos over time I love that. Like, that's a huge, like, gratitude moment for me. Mm -hmm. So imagine how impactful that must be for younger kids. Mm -hmm. I think that is a huge piece of it. And especially with a sport where um, everybody is wearing a face covering, that's actually a really big piece of the psychology of it, is you can't see our faces because we're wearing masks. Um whether it's a cage or a bubble or whatever, it's harder to form a personal connection with somebody when you can't see their face. So what that ends up coming down to is like, we need to put more effort into marketing. And that's a conversation that they're having here in um, Stockholm with our team, Jurgarden, because we have a rink that holds around, I think 8,000 people and they just opened it up to full capacity and as soon as they opened up the first men's game they sold over 6,000 tickets and the crowds at this rink are insane but then during the game when they advertised like something for our next game some someone behind us said something in Swedish and I looked at the girl and I said what what did he just say and she goes oh he didn't know we had a women's team and it's like, okay, so how, how do you have people who are avid supporters 
of the club. And Garden has hockey and soccer, I think. They're avid supporters of the club, but they don't know that there's a women's professional ice hockey team. It was the same when I was in Norway too. Like Valrenga men's is like one of the, the bigger clubs in Norway for men's hockey and football as well. And yeah, like nobody, hardly anybody was out at the women's games. Like, I don't even know if they charge entrance. Like that's how like kind of, I don't want to say desperate, but like, that's the only word I can kind of figure out here is like desperate to have people coming into the games. Like they were scared to be charging people to come and watch us play at top division hockey. And yeah. like, granted, Norwegian hockey is very, very different from Swedish hockey uh, in terms of like the level of competition, but it it still demonstrates the same point that we're trying to make here. Yeah. And that was a conversation that I also had with um, the equipment manager that I had at school, who is, is no longer there. Um, but I found out that we were charging like I think it might have been $3 a ticket at college. And we were getting to a point where we were selling out the rink. And I was like, this is amazing. What would it be like if we could double ticket price? So it's still six bucks. Like it's only six bucks for a ticket. And his response to that was, well, we need to keep it affordable for families because this is such a family event. And I said, well, they charged the men's team. I said, I said, aren't the men's games also a family event? Like, don't young boys and girls teams also go to the men's games? He said, well, yeah, but they have 80,000 or however many, not 80,000, I don't know, 10, 15,000 seats to sell. And I said, okay, so if they have that many, why are their tickets 25 to 50 and ours are like three to five dollars? And he couldn't answer me. And I'm like, so so there is an apparent, hey, we can charge more for this product because people are willing to pay that. But if we up the price of this product, then it is no longer a family-friendly, like go out with the whole family kind of event because it's too expensive. That's very sad to hear. Now very I should sad. say that that was one person's opinion in of course, but that doesn't change but... the overall outcome of the entire situation, though, right? Right. Like, yes, it's one person's opinion, but if the if the organization or the university, I guess, in this matter, is not willing to make those changes, like three dollars is nothing. Like you can go to Tim Hortons and get yourself a coffee and donut for three bucks. <laughs> well, maybe not. It's going to break the bank. <laughs> yeah, maybe not anymore. <laughs> But I don't think it's going to break the bank if you, like you just said, double it to $6. Yeah. But then as soon as he said that in my mind, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. You're taking that from an $18 night to a $32 night. And I was like, wait, no, what? God, no, no. Why am I doing that? <laughs> no, don't think like that, Lauren. Don't think like right, that. But it's like, it's internalized though. Because oh, for sure. Everything from... Like the for women's ice hockey, let's say everything from the time slots that you get for workout and practice to the number of people you see in the stands to the resources that you get access to to the support staff that you have access to communicates the value of your product. 
which makes you value yourself less because that's what you're given. And I think we've kind of talked about this before. Like we are paid less. We have the shittier ice times, the shittier training uh, times as well. We're not compensated, like even with perks and benefits in in that sense, Mm -hmm. but we are able to manage full-time jobs. Sometimes people have more than one job. Sometimes people are in school and they're still able to show up and perform at a high level. Now, just imagine if women were able to get the same compensation, same perks and benefits, be able to have optimal training programs and times and not have to stress and mentally exert themselves by showing up at another job, mm-hmm. how do you think that would improve their performance overall? Right. Okay, so men's sports have been around for a really long time, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know how long has the NHL been a thing, like since the early 1900s or something like that? Yeah. I think, and and it's been quote unquote professional, right? Like women have been playing sports since then. Like I've seen pictures of women in the 1900s and their long ass skirts and hockey skates holding sticks. Like they were, they were engaged in sport, but it was always like, oh, like that's fun. That's nice. Right. Whereas for men from a, a long time ago, over a century ago, it was, it was seen as a business, right? It was seen as marketable, it was invested in as such. And even in the course of our lifetime, right? I know in the course of my lifetime, like, I couldn't imagine going to an NHL game and not spending a shit ton of money for the tickets, but that's just always the way it's been. The challenge for us is we're at a spot where it's been free. There's never been a charge to it. And now we're like, okay, we want to be treated similar to that. And and that's right. We're entitled to that because you work just as hard. You know, you're just as committed to your sport. You train just as hard. But I, again, like, the challenge is even some of my friends, I think in the course of my lifetime, like women who play hockey would be willing to pay, let's say like a couple hundred bucks to go watch the Leafs play the Habs at Scotiabank Pond. Mm. And I don't know that they'd be willing to pay a hundred bucks to go watch the Toronto Furies play the Boston, whatever at maybe the same arena. Mm-hmm. And that's the challenge, right? Like, And again, I'm not saying it rightly or wrongly. I'm just always going to try to throw something in to like make us think big picture here. Right. But that's kind of what we're up against. That's where, like I said, it always goes back to me for how do we make women's hockey something that people want to invest in? Like you don't necessarily need to become the next Danbury Thrashers or Trashers or whatever. And (laughs) but like create it. How do you create an environment where people want to come to the rink and be a part of it, where they're invested in people like social media, leveraging that is huge. Reese mm-hmm. is not really big in, in sports, but on the odd occasion, I can convince her to watch like a sport biography with me on an athlete. And once she does, she's like, Oh, like, it's so nice to like know so much about them. And then she'd actually be interested in watching them compete in a game or something like that. Right? Like the challenge is, women's hockey has been around sports have been around for a long time but we're trying to create a new value proposition moving forward and how do we do that from the grassroots level because we're starting at zero men born the same time as me come in and there's already a huge system and opportunities to go play professionally and pre-existing salaries that okay it's either going to be that or it's going to be higher than that right Right. yeah well and and the other piece of that too of like what you're talking about is like we acknowledge that the men went through the same thing 
right? Like they had other jobs. They worked at factories and then they went to the rink and they played. And we acknowledge that like, yes, you have to go through those growing pains. But I want to know or maybe this requires more research on my part, but when they started to say like, hey, you need to pay to come to these games. Hey, we're going to market this so that it's an event that you go to. I want to hear somebody who said, no, you can't do that because it's just a sport and we don't know how good it's going to be. Or you're just a man and we don't right. want to watch you play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I tried to research into like some of the early salaries because again, like I, I want women's hockey to be just as successful as men's hockey. I want women, little girls to be able to look at the women and say, wow, I could do this for a living, right? Like I have the same dreams as you guys do. I look back, it was like 1908 or something. Art Ross, who was quote unquote, one of the best defensemen of his time. His salary, I think that year was like 1200 bucks. That was in 1908. So it said when adjusted to like today's standards, it was like just over 40 grand US mm -hmm. considering. Yeah. So that was in the earlier stages, right? And again, like most women would probably be like, that's not bad, right? Like that's not Even a bad Even now, sport. 40 grand, holy yeah. crap. We'll take yeah, that, literally. we'll run with that. I take that again, that, that was sure. in a very like, that was in a very man's world. And I don't think it can be overlooked that like, it was just men playing sports. So if you were interested in sports, you just went and watched the guys play. Now mm. we're like competing with an already pre-existing framework of male sports to get sports enthusiasts equally as excited about women playing sports. Yeah. Mm. It's a challenge for sure. And I think it would be really interesting to get somebody on who maybe knows a little bit more about like the background framework for how that would actually happen because there are a lot of people in marketing that talk about different ways of getting that. And like, maybe that's starting with like getting the analytics on women's sports. And I know that's kind of been in the news a little bit more in the last few years specifically about yeah. like what the viewership is, because we're trying to prove like there is an audience here and maybe it's not as big as the NHL, but like realistically the leagues over here aren't as big as the NHL either. So something to consider. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But I think like to sum it up, we look at the Olympics as like the Olympics are this big pressure cooker, right? And we, we talk about how, um, like how do these athletes learn to handle the pressure? How do they cope with it? How does the Olympics become an event that either like makes or breaks an athlete, right? Because it is this pinnacle showcase. And then on the other side, how do we deem what is worthy of being an Olympic sport? How do we have these conversations still now where we're saying, mm, hey, yeah, maybe this shouldn't be an Olympic sport because it's not what it should be because countries aren't investing what they need to be investing. I think that's an important thing to add in there, right? It's, it doesn't have anything to do with the athletes. It, the conversation should be surrounding what the country is investing into the sport. Um, and how do we create a platform where financial equity is attainable? Because I think right now, especially in the world of like women's hockey specifically, I, I don't know if you guys feel differently, but to me right now, it does not even feel like it's attainable. 
because of how much work we still have to do and because of the backlash that still exists and that you see in people's articles that ask if it should even be an Olympic sport anymore. Well, this is where, as mindset coaches, we would really emphasize progress over perfection and the growth mindset over a fixed mindset, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think that's the challenge. Like, how do we get incrementally better or incrementally closer to where we would like to be one day at a time, right? Rather yeah. than fixating on, oh my gosh, we're not getting, you know, what they're getting. And then, because I've been there too, right? And then you just get frustrated and you're like, oh, it's like, up like it's not fair like why are we we work just as hard why are we not getting that um but yeah mm -hmm. absolutely and i think it's about getting other people to understand that it's a it's progress yes. right and it's a journey to getting there we're not going to get there overnight the wnba did not get to where they're at right now overnight the nwsl did not get to where they're at overnight they didn't like, get there on their own. No. And I think right now it's, it's also really important to know just how much like the internet and social media can play a very positive role in this process to get there. I mean, I know we look at like the NCAA athletes, they're now able to get compensated for being athletes and for promoting the programs and and being like influencers and stuff so like maybe that's also a role that needs to be looked at in terms of the progress that we can and want to see women's sports all around but obviously we're talking women's hockey here so like in the phf like what is it that they can be doing to get their athletes to you know be in the limelight to have their faces in front of everybody. Same with the PWHPA, same with SDHL. You know what I mean? It's a never ending cycle. Really, it's like you get enough money, so you don't get adequate training, so you don't get, you know, like the right times to work out. So you have to work so that you can pay for that kind of stuff on your own. And then the product is affected. So you keep back through there and we just have to find a way I think to like slowly start to break that cycle bit by bit and again it's not going to come overnight and it's not going to come by ourselves no it's a never-ending pursuit of excellence love that Boom. 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 that's it that's the episode right there that's the episode. you and <laughs> it's on you MJ that's you girl no it's Lauren this week <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Let's hear it, Lou. No pressure. Who can say where Ooh, <laughs> I like that. I like that voice crack in there. Mm -mm. Got a touch of Macy Gray okay. in there. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, that wraps up today's episode. <laughs> Thanks for joining, everybody. Hope you were buckled in. Buckled up, buckled up, right. buckled up. Buckled up. <laughs> buckled up, buckled in, or buckled down? All of the above. Maybe we should start a because, poll. Right? Technically, like, you want the buckle to keep you down. Like, <laughs> you're going up, there's a problem with the buckle. Just saying. Oh, no. <laughs> Here we go, down the rabbit hole of shenanigans. <laughs> and, and goodbye. Shenaniganery. Yeah. <sighs>
Any final words? Thanks for listening, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. We have a really solid uh, intro and outro plan. (laughs) Weekly basis. Progress over perfection, MJ. Progress over perfection. (laughs)